You're listening to an audio sermon from Trinity Bible Chapel. For more information, please visit our website at trinitybiblechapel.ca. Turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 7. Taking a pause from Matthew's Gospel today. And on Friday, I sense that would be a good idea because many of you have been going through some difficult trials recently. And many, many of you are watching some of the people you love go through trials. And I think this is a text that will encourage you. We've had... It's amazing to me, we went through all of those lockdowns and all of the troubles that we had and, you know, we were told that we were going to kill people because we were gathering as a church and everything else and we didn't have any deaths at all as a congregation for that entire two, two and a half year period. And, um, but then it seems over the last month or so, there's been a number of people in the church who have died and lost people and then there's a number who are going through Uh, dark trials. And so I wanted to spend some time in this passage, in Genesis 7, verse 11 through 8, verse 5. And what I'm doing is I'm revisiting a text that I preached years ago. A few of you will remember it. Many of you won't. I've reworked it some, but I've kept a great deal of it. And it's a text that I've often thought about. I don't know how many times I thought about it. I lose track over how many times I think about this text. But when I've gone through trials or I've watched others go through trials, I've revisited this text. It's, for some reason, it really stood out to me and it's filed away in my brain or in my heart and I pull this file a lot uh, just to minister to myself. And so my hope today is to minister to you and... I think that there's a number of you going through trials, as I mentioned, and if you're not, then what I'm going to ask you to do is I'm going to ask you to take this text, file it away, and I trust that it will serve you as it has served me um, over the years, as I've thought about it and revisited it to encourage me. So, I hope this gives you strength. And if I could summarize this with one little phrase, it's God remembers you. And because he remembers you, he's using the waves to carry you to the place of rest, the rock of rest. God remembers you, and because he remembers you, if you're in Christ, he's using the waves and the storm to carry you to the place of rest. Let me read Genesis chapter 7, verse 11, and I'll read through to chapter 8, verse 5. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, All the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened. And rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. 
On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast, according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded them. The Lord shot him in. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. The waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land, in whose nostrils was the breath of life, died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left, and those who were with him in the ark, and the waters prevailed on the earth a hundred and fifty days. But God remembered Noah. And all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens were restrained. And the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. The waters continued to abate until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. Please bow with me for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we pray and we ask for your blessing now upon our time together. Would you please comfort those who are afflicted? Would you please use this to strengthen us, to draw us even closer to our Savior who loves us? We pray that the church would even be more unified with one another around the Christ who is preached from this text. And we pray, Father in heaven, that you'd save the lost today, that you'd restore backsliders and bring them to Jesus for forgiveness. And it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. The story of Noah illustrates to us the care of God for his people in the terrible storms of life. God cares. God remembers. God carries. In the days of Noah, many of you would have been taught this story as young children. 
no doubt, and it's probably one of the most familiar stories in all of the Bible. In the days of Noah, the earth had corrupted, and all was lost to sin, to darkness, except for one man and his family, and that's Noah. Noah had faith in God, and everything was corrupt. There was no good left in the world, except in one man and his family. And this poor man suffered. He suffered as he looked out on the sin and corruption and destruction that he had to behold and he had to live with. I'm sure he wondered about the future. And God told Noah to build an ark in which he was to bottle up all of creation. The ark would become as a bottle. All of creation would be stuffed in the bottle. There'd be a cork on it, and it would basically be thrown in the ocean where it would bob up and down. The entire earth was stuffed in that ark. Noah built the ark, and with at least two of every kind of animal, every two, of, every two kind of bugs, every two kind of birds, they entered the ark, and the earth was flooded universally, higher than the highest mountain. So Noah built this ark, and God sent a great flood to clean the earth. And what he did when he cleaned the earth is he cleaned the earth like you would clean a dish after dinner. You got butter and leftovers and scraps and gravy on your dish. And what do you do but you run it under hot water to clean it? Well, that's how God cleaned the earth. He cleaned it like you'd clean a dish. And as God was cleaning the earth off with this flood of judgment, Noah's life and Noah's family and all of creation was bobbing up and down on top of it. And if you want to see the universal devastation of this flood, we see in verse 11 that water comes from all directions. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were open. The Bible, the Hebrew scriptures are very earthy and describes it almost as a tap was turned on. With a pressure so high within this water line that you have never seen before. And multiple taps were turned on. A faucet was turned on and the earth was filled from all directions with water. It was universal and the magnitude was so great that it reached higher than the highest mountains. You look at verse 17 and it says, the flood continued 40 days on the earth. These taps were on for 40 days. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated over the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. A cubit is about 18 inches, a foot and a half. So a foot and a half times 15. Nobody's surviving above the highest mountain. Some liberal, theological liberals want to come to this text and say, no, this was just a local flood. No, you can't come to this text and say this is a local flood unless you deny the Scriptures. It's plainly obvious from the text that this is a universal flood 
that when 15 cubits, so 15 times a foot and a half, above every, the highest mountaintop, it was absolutely devastating, and it brought terrible death and destruction. Verse 21 says, And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures, a swarm on the earth and all mankind, everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life. He, meaning God, blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things that, and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. So it was universal death. Now, remember Noah's life and the life of hardship that he had. Because his entire life, he was facing off against an, as well, a wicked generation where there were corruption, corruption and destruction in all areas. And he was trying his best as a man of God to survive in the middle of this all alone. And the top it off is he's lived his life this way. He's now seen it for 600 years because the text says he was 600 years old, which I believe. Now he's bottled up in this ark. And the ark is sealed tight. It tells us that God sealed it. So that when the water comes down and the water comes up, there's no water getting in this ark. And the pressure of the water was great, coming from many different directions, and it lasted for 40 days. God sealed the ark up so that no water would get in. And this man is in the ark with a lot of animals, livestock, wild beasts, some of you will say, well, how did that work? Well, I've, I've seen explanations on how this would work. I'm not going to go through it right now. You can look into that yourself, but I believed it worked. One of the things I know is when you get a bunch of animals together, the smells come too. I've been to some of your farms, and I've seen your manure piles. <laughs> and the manure piles are not in the house, and they're not in the barn. They're outside the house, and they're outside the barn. Remember, the ark was sealed tight. Lots of smells. And it's dark. It's certainly dark for 40 days and 40 nights because this is when the storm came. The waters poured down from the heavens, and so it was pitch black outside for 40 days and 40 nights. Every day looked like the night, and every night looked like the day, and every day looked like the next day, and every night looked like the next night for 40 days and 40 nights. It's dark. And Noah would have heard the noises from the outside. He would have heard the people screaming as they died for those first few hours. He would have heard the wind howling and beating against the ark. He would have heard the, way, the rain pounding against its roof. He would have heard the noises, and the noises would have been horrifying. And this is where we are in the life of Noah. Some of you have had long car rides with your family that you've found unpleasant. This is 40 days and 40 nights of rain pounding against the ark with dreadful sounds on the outside, and they're sealed in. And, and, and he brought every creeping thing with him in the ark, so that would include flies. And so if he brought flies in the ark, and if he had livestock in the ark, and he had manure in the ark, 
You can imagine that by the time he got out of the ark, he was happy to get out of the ark. I think he'd had enough probably after a day or two. You know, the children's stories, it's always so cute, right? The animals are so cute and friendly and cuddly. But I don't think as you read this in the Bible, you get the impression that this is a wonderful scene. So as I've described this horrifying picture of Noah riding on the waves in the ark with his, you know, it's the biggest collection of livestock you've ever seen, at least in variety. We pick up in chapter 8 with these four words that ought to touch your heart. Verse 1, but God remembered Noah. Did you hear that? But God remembered Noah. Those four words. God remembered Noah. Forty days of rain followed by 110 days of floating with no land in sight, just drifting along. By the time we get to chapter 8, we're looking at about 150 days in total. How do I know that? Well, because if you go up to verse 11 of chapter 7, it says, In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened. That's the second month, the 17th day, and then you get to 8 verse 4, and what does it say? And in the seventh month, on the 17th day. So it starts on the second month and the 17th day, and it goes here until the seventh month, 17th day. That's when he lands on Mount Ararat. That's 150 days. If you have five months, which that is, right down to the day, and there are 30 days in a month, you've got 150 days. 150 days of bobbing up and down on the sea. I don't think that Noah had ever been on a boat trip, at least this long. I doubt he'd ever traversed a great lake, never mind an ocean. But this is 150 days until he finds a place where the ark can lodge. And there's yet more time before he can even get out of the ark. The ark is dark, so keeping track of the days would have been a challenge, wouldn't have been easy. And every day and every night would look the same. Here's what I want you to take away from our text today. Because God remembers you, He is caring for you when you don't see it. And because God remembers you, He is carrying you when you don't feel it. That's what I want you to take away today. I described the misery of Noah's situation. And then we, everything shifts, everything pivots. Verse 1 of chapter 8. Four words, but God remembered Noah. It all pivots. And all of a sudden, it's like the day breaks. And good things start to happen. And what I want you to do today is I want you to take this away. Because God remembers you, He cares for you when you don't see it. And because God remembers you, He carries you when you don't feel it. Please take that away from my sermon this morning. You might feel alone. You might feel as if you've completely lost control. You're bobbing up and down on the ocean and waves. You might even wonder and sense that God has forsaken you. And there might, you might be at the place where you don't sense any movement or blessing of God at all. Alone, out of control, forsaken, with no movement or blessing of God. God remembers you. And because He remembers you, He cares when you don't see it, and He carries you when you don't feel it. God remembers you.
He remembers you because you've been purchased by the blood of His Son. He's covenantally tied to you. God remembers you. Let's look at my first point, and the first point is this, God remembers you. But God remembers you. God remembers us. In all Noah's misery, which I've already described, we get to this very important phrase, not even a full sentence, just four words, an incomplete sentence, but God remembered Noah. He always remembers his people, by the way. He remembered Abraham in Genesis chapter 19, verse 29. He remembered Rachel in Genesis 30, verse 22. For years she'd been unable to bear a child, and she was in sorrow and emotional turmoil for her barrenness. And then we're told in Genesis 30, verse 22, but God remembered Rachel. She bore a child. He remembers Israel in Exodus chapter 2, verse 24, and Exodus chapter 6, verse 5. They were under the heavy hand of the Pharaoh. They would have been enslaved The burdens were piling up on their backs. They were crying out to God in misery and were told, God remembered Israel. He remembered Abraham. He remembered Rachel. He remembered Israel. He remembered Noah. And he remembers you. He remembers his people. And in this story, this remembrance changes everything. The word but there actually changes everything. Noah's turmoil and his pain and his suffering, the darkness of the the ride on the ark, everything pivots on this one word, but. Something changes massively on a universal scale. God is starting to move in a different direction And the narrative is turning from darkness to life, to light, from death to life. From fear to hope, from chaos to order, something good is starting to happen. It's it's a pivot. He's moving, and it doesn't happen immediately, but this marks the shift. And so even if you haven't seen a shift in your life, and you're sitting there, and you're saying, Every day is the same and the same and the same and the same. And I'm in this trial and this trial and the trial. And the day looks like the night and the night looks like the day. And yesterday looks like today. And today I think is just going to look like tomorrow. The very fact that God remembers you tells me that there's a pivot. Something shifts when you hear that. So when you're praying and your prayers aren't answered. Or when there's darkness and you see no light. And when it seems like things continue to get worse and one day is just like the day before, what I want you to do is I want you to look at that phrase right there, those four words, but God remembered Noah. And I want you to put your finger over the word Noah and I want you to say, but God remembered and then put your name right there. God remembered you. How do I know he remembered you? Because he remembered you on the cross. And he's got your name written in the book of life, and he hasn't forgotten what's in that book. And the blood of his son has purchased you and secured you. God remembers you. And on the basis of his covenant with you in Christ, you can look at that text, and you can look at those four words, and you can cover the the word Noah with your finger, and you can put your name right there, and you can say, but God remembered. You fill in the blank. 
You. He remembered you. Your salvation has been secured by his blood and your hope has been sealed by the Holy Spirit of God. That's my first point. God remembers us. He remembers you. You. Here's my second point today. Because he remembers you, he cares for you when you don't see it. He cares for you when you don't see it. The mention of God's memory leads to the mention of the wind. Verse 1, but God remembered Noah, and it talks about the animals and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth. The wind tells us, I'm not making this up, I'll explain why I'm saying this. The wind tells us that God is on the move. He's stirring. Something's happening. Now the word, the Hebrew word, the Old Testament is originally written in, written in Hebrew, and the Hebrew word for wind is ruah. And it can also be translated spirit. Wind and spirit are the same word in Hebrew. Which indicates, when you hear that the wind is moving in this text, it indicates that God is moving, that His Spirit is moving, that He's stirring. Why do I say that? Well, because just before God created the world, what happened? His Spirit was hovering over the face of the deep. What's happening? His wind is hovering over the face of the deep here. If you get to the Exodus account, after God remembered the people of God in, in Egypt, what happens is it's the wind that moves over the Red Sea just as the Red Sea is to be parted. It's the wind. It's symbolizing that God is stirring, that He's moving in His memory. His memory has triggered Him. God remembers Noah, and because he remembers Noah, he's stirring. Although Noah can't even see him stirring, you can't see the wind. But the wind is stirring, and God is stirring. At the baptism of Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God comes down. God is beginning to work through the life of Christ and his ministry. And I think on the day of Pentecost, in the book of Acts, chapter 2, what happened? A, like a mighty wind, the Spirit of God came down in tongues of fire and built the church and revival broke out. Do you see? When we're told that the wind is here, it's significant. But for Noah, it might not have been significant. I don't know. Because Noah had already been through a lot of wind. And that amount of wind that Noah had experienced was not a pleasant experience because his last memory of wind was the wind pounding against the outside of the ark and howling across the ocean. The wind. I mean, I think Noah would be terrorized by the wind. I think the wind would keep him up for life or for at night. I don't think the wind would be a very pleasant sound for Noah. It'd be a very uncomfortable sound because you think of all the wind has done to him. As the wind has rocked his boat and as the wind has produced the waves to pound against the ark and as the winds of the storm have essentially ushered in this wicked rainstorm that has buried all of civilization underneath him. 
I don't think the wind would have been a very pleasant sound for Noah. But it's the wind here that indicates the presence of God and that God is beginning to stir. And sometimes when the Lord shows up, he shows up in the most unpleasant way possible to the point that you don't even see the blessing that has come upon you. This is the way he works. He's mysterious. But because he remembers, you can have confidence that he cares for you when you don't see him. And you don't see it. The wind. Well, the invisible wind tells us that the memory for God is the memory of God for Noah is up to something good and better days of coming. And then as soon as we're told about the wind, what happens? And God made a wind blow over the earth, and what happened? The waters subsided. Verse 2 tells us, goes on, that God turned off the taps. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens were restrained. The taps were opened. In 7 verse 11, the taps are shut off. The faucets are closed now. It's over. The water is no longer beating against the ark. It's no longer pumping up from underneath the ark. In fact, there is now a recession of water. It's receded, verse 3. And the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated, and so it still took some time. But what I want you to see here, imagine you were Noah. Again, let's go back in the ark for a moment. And imagine that you were Noah. And you've just come through this horrifying flood. Your life has been very miserable because you've had to watch all the sin around you and destruction that it's produced. You've just come through this horrifying flood. You're on an ark full of livestock and beasts. The wind is picking up again, and you've seen no change. You've seen no change. Now, verse 3 tells us that the waters receded from the earth continually, so we know there's change. But Noah has no way of seeing the change. We know that God is caring for Noah because the waters are receding. But Noah has no way of seeing that the waters are receding. If he can see out of the ark, so if he's able to open outside the ark, he's able to see out, and he looks outside the ark, what's he going to see? is the waters recede. He's going to see water and sky. Even if the waters go down 15 feet, what's he going to see? He's going to see water and sky. The waters are receding, but Noah sees no change. God is caring for Noah, but Noah sees no change. God is stirring below the deep. Something significant is happening underfoot. Something is significant. There's an undercurrent that is occurring, but Noah is incapable of seeing it with his eyes because if he were to look outside the ark, all as he'd see is sky and water as far as the horizon will go. For days on end, by the way. And yet the water is receding. You have basically 40 days of storm followed by 110 days of no apparent movement, but during that 110 days, there is a recession of water. 40 days of storm, followed by 110 days of the water receding, receding but there's no 
way of Noah to seeing the water recede. Because as water recedes, it's sky and it's water. And while Noah's patience is tested, and while Noah sees no movement of God, God remembers him, and God is caring for him when he doesn't see it, and God is working below the surface, because below the surface, God is remembering Noah, and God is caring for Noah, and Noah has no way of seeing it. And that's the way it is often. We're waiting. We're suffering, we're praying, we see nothing, we see no answered prayer, and yet somehow, somewhere, some way below your nose, where you have no way of perceiving what's going on, God is at work, and you just can't see it. Eventually you will, but you just can't see it. It's actually interesting, like I preached this text years ago. And I doubt most of you remember it. Some of you do. I preached this text years ago, and I looked at my notes to kind of review it. And in my point of application right here, where I'm talking about not being able to see the movement of God, although God is moving, I said, you know, we as a church, we've been praying that God will give us a building. We've been praying that God would... Uh, allow us to experience lots of baptisms, and we just have to keep praying because we don't know how God's moving and we don't see Him moving. And then you look back over the time that the Lord's given us, and, and what do we see just as I was preaching that text? God was moving and He was preparing a building for us, and God was moving and He was preparing an opportunity for us to bring people to Christ or expose them to the gospel so that He could save them. And how many baptisms have we seen? And then back then we were earnestly praying, and we didn't know what the Lord had for us. My, my point is this, is as you persevere in your trials and as you persevere in the darkness and you persevere in your prayers and you see absolutely no change, I want you to remember old Noah looking out on the horizon, seeing the sky, seeing the water, thinking there's absolutely no change, but in all of it, God was moving and he was draining the flood, but Noah had no way of perceiving it. And that's the way the Lord works. God remembers Noah. And because of that, God is caring for him, even when Noah doesn't see it. And if you're in Christ, God remembers you. And God is caring for you, even if you don't see it. He's doing it. That's my second point. My first point was because he remembers you, or he remembers you. My second point is because he remembers you, he cares for you when you don't see it. Here's my third and final point. Because God remembers you, He is carrying you even when you don't feel it. He cares for you when you don't see it, and He's carrying you even when you don't feel it. Now, sometimes your legs get heavy and your backs get sore, and you wonder how much more you can bear. And even though the legs are getting heavy and the back's getting sore, God is carrying you, carrying you, even if you don't feel it and the legs are still heavy and the back's still sore. In all of this, God, Noah's still in the middle of the ark, right? And I mean, I'm, I'm sure there was worship on the ark. I'm sure there was prayers on the ark. I'm sure there was talk of God and talk of his oracles on the ark. 
But as you know, you can go to church and you can pray and you can worship and you can study the scriptures, but you've still got to deal with the facts of life as painful as they are. It's not like your, it's not like your prayer life and your Bible reading and going to worship services, it's not like it removes you from the trials that you're in. God certainly helps you in the trials. And being with God and using the means of grace that He's provided helps you through the trials. But it doesn't take you out of them. And so I'm sure all of that was there. And I'm sure by this point in the journey, 40 days and 40 nights of, of terrible weather, and then 150 days in total on the high seas, God has been carrying Noah even when he didn't feel it. The place that he's carrying you to is the same place that he's carrying Noah, he carried Noah to, and that's the place of rest. Let me explain. Let me explain. If you look up at chapter 7, verse 11, that's the last time we had a date. The next date is in chapter 8, verse 4. So chapter 7, verse 11 gives us a date. The 600th year of Noah's life, and the second month, and the 17th day of the month, and that day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heaven were open. So there's your date. And then you go down to chapter 8, verse 4, and it says, In the seventh month, and the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. There's your next date. Hebrew scholar Gordon Wenham points out, this is operating according to a Hebrew calendar that would have been common in those days. And he indicates that in chapter 7, verse 11, this point in the narrative, it's a Sunday, which is the day after the Hebrew Sabbath. It's the beginning of the week. And then he goes down to chapter, you go down to chapter 8, verse 4, and he points out the fact that if you understand the Hebrew calendar, the chapter 8, verse 4, seventh month and the 17th day of the month, what he says is, is that it's a Friday, which is the day before the Sabbath. And so what I'm trying to tell you is that the journey on the ark began just after the Sabbath rest, and the journey on the ark ends just before the Sabbath rest, and there was 150 days in between. And in fact, you get the impression from the text that those 150 days were one long day, because every day almost looked the same. And then in chapter 8, verse 4, on the seventh month and the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. As sure as the day is long, Noah entered his rest. Now, Mount Ararat was in eastern Turkey or southern Russia or northern Iran, and it's 17,000 feet above elevation, above sea level, and Turks call it Bik Eri Dap. But after 40 days of storm, my point is, with 110 more days of floating, Noah is now resting on solid ground, and the text tells us that he came to rest. That's significant. Noah's name actually means rest, but he's entering into some type of Sabbath rest. So now what's happening is the storms have been settled down, and you could imagine what type of sea legs you'd have out of after 150 days on that journey. And for the very first time, Noah is now standing on solid ground, and everything is resting. 
God used the waves. This is what I'm trying to point out. I said he's carrying you when you don't feel it. God used the waves to carry Noah to the solid ground of rest. Did you hear me? God used the waves, the storm, the biggest waves you've ever seen, to carry Noah to the place of solid ground where there's rest. The storm and the waves are God's servants to take you to the place of rest. So, so this is not a random storm. This isn't a storm that's out of control. In fact, the Scriptures tell us all things work together for those who are love God and are called according to His purpose. And this tells me that every little droplet in that storm and every little gust of wind, every wave that crashed up against that ark was God's chariot, His chariot that He was using to escort Noah to the place that He wanted him to go. It's interesting because all the ancient civilizations have an account of the flood. In fact, my daughter, who's in grade 9 at King Alfred Academy, just told me that they were learning of some ancient flood stories outside of the Bible. And this is important for us to know, so I'm glad they're studying that. But the Bible preserved the true record of the flood, and all the other ancient stories are corrupted. But let me read to you a little bit from the Babylonian story of the flood. And then what we're going to do is I'm going to compare that to Noah's story, the Bible story. The Babylonian account says, The gods were terror-struck at the forces they themselves had unleashed. They were appalled at the consequences of their own actions, over which they no longer had control. In other words, the Babylonian account of the flood was a corrupted account of the flood, and the Babylonians' understanding of their false gods was that their false gods lost complete control during the time of the flood, so that the flood just became random chaos, and the, and the gods were beside themselves. But this is not the Christian account. But you compare that to the Christian account, and what do we find? That we believe that God was in control of each droplet and each wave, and every single thing was accounted for. He appointed each little instance and each moment of time in that flood. Each wave was the chariot ride that brought Noah to the place of rest. And this is the way it is for you and me. The pagan, the lost person, the heathen, looks out on the world and experiences the trials of life and says, this is random disaster. The Christian looks out at the world and sees all of the trials of life and says, these are the storms and the waves that God has appointed as my chariots to take me to the place he wants me to go. Every one of them is your servant, in other words. Every one of them is your slave. Obeying God's word to take you exactly where God wants you to be. Why? Because God remembers you. And he cares when you don't see it. And he carries you when you don't feel it. And he brings you to the place of rest after the trial. When? We don't know. Where? We don't know. 
But I know this, that Noah landed on that big rock, Mount Ararat, and that great rock was the place of rest. And God is using all of your trials to bring you closer to the rock who is Jesus Christ, who is your rest. His, his purpose for you is your own sanctification, and he's appointed every little and every big event in your life to draw you closer to Jesus. C.H. Spurgeon once said something to the effect of, I've learned to kiss the waves that drive me to the rock that is Jesus Christ. I've learned to kiss the waves that drive me to the rock that is Jesus Christ. What do we learn from this text? Well, we learn that God remembers you. And because God remembers you, He cares for you when you don't see it. And because God remembers you, He's carrying you when you don't feel it. And because God remembers you, He's taking you to the rock of rest, who is the Savior. And every wave, and every storm, and every night of darkness is bringing you closer to our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me please have a word of prayer for you. Father in heaven, I pray for these dear people, and I pray for your comfort upon each and every one, that this text would be a memory for them that would strengthen all, and each one of us would find joy and delight in coming to Jesus Christ, even with the pain and the turmoil and the storms and the ways of this world. We thank you for our Savior, and we pray you continue to increase our tenderness towards him. Please comfort those who are afflicted by storms and darkness right now. Please strengthen them, dear Lord. Be a healing towards their souls. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.